Oh, that we may hear him say, well done, good, trustworthy. Enter into the joy. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But I confess that this is one of those passages that, that troubles me a lot, fearing that voice that says, worthless, get him out of here. It's, it's a passage that invites reflection on just what it is, who it is that I think Jesus actually is, and what I think he thinks of me, and what I think, what I think of me. So I have three things. Uh, one, what's going on in this passage? What do I think of God? What do I think of me? What's going on in this passage? Now, in, actually, I'm really interested in servant number three as opposed to one and two. So what happens is the master, a wealthy landowner, is getting ready to go on a long journey. And, of course, Jesus is comparing the, himself to um, a wealthy master who's going to go away for a long time. He'll eventually come back, but in the meantime, he's going to entrust his whole estate to the tender administration of his most trusted servants. And it seems like to be given just one talent is like, eh, but a talent was, well, the estimates vary, but on the low end, a talent is estimated to have been worth 15 years of an average person's working wage. On the top end, 25 years of a workman's wage. And then multiply that by two, and you have what the one of the servants got, and multiply by five, and you got what the other servant got. To be given just one talent is not a small thing. And the thing is, the master knows each of the servants, knows them well enough to know what it is that they ought to be able to handle and what it is that they ought to be able to flourish with. But in the case of servant number three, something is amiss. And it really has to do with what he thinks about his master. So that takes us to the second point. What, what do I think of God? In fact, our three different scriptures today give us really good opportunity to talk about really bad conceptions of who God is. Zephaniah, the Lord will do no good, nor will he do harm. God, really the God of indifference? Oh, no. He's a God of patience. And all the stuff that really makes you mad about what's going on out there today, in the end, he's going to take care of it. The Thessalonian passage, there is peace and security. All the false hope and the la-da-la, blah-blah-blah, it's going to get blown away at some point. But it's really, it's really servant number three whose misconception I'm fascinated with because it's easy for me to slide into. We've all had that boss 
or known somebody who has that boss. And this is how servant number three thinks of his boss, Jesus. He thinks of him like the, from Dilbert, remember the pointy-haired boss? Who is himself incompetent and demands random objectives and then takes full credit for everybody else's good idea or good actions. That's, that's what servant number three thinks Jesus is and the one to whom he's going to have to give an answer at the end of the day. Brothers and sisters, in the story it's like, okay, if that's what you want, that's what you're going to get. But that's not really who he is. What he is is he longs to be in a relationship where he, where he, where there's mutuality and where there's blessing that's returned for blessing. That's why at the English Reformation, our forebearer Thomas Cranmer, feeling like many did in his day, that over the course of time, where medieval theology had left us with it was with a Jesus who was like the pointy-haired boss that you never really could quite please. And so you just try and try and try and never feel like you could get his attention. Or if you got his attention, you'd just get a scowling face. And that's why, that's why one of the first things that Thomas Cramner did in putting together the Book of Common Prayer was turn to Matthew. If, if you would, take the Book of Common Prayer and open to page 344. These are words that are commended for reading after the, after the confession of sin and the absolution in Rite 1. They're Thomas Cramner's gift to the church. And he goes in the first place to Matthew's gospel, recognizing that the gospel that we're just about to complete our year of reading is one that paints a different portrait than the pointy-haired, incompetent boss, the grump. But the one who is among us as Emmanuel, God with us, the one who has promised to go to a cross, to take our sins, our griefs, even our diseases into the grave, and who promises that where two or three are gathered, he's there, and who promises as we go into the world and tell the good news, he is there. Listen to what he says. Come to me. All ye that travail and are heavy laden, I will refresh you. If you're worn out, come to me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. For I am meek and lowly of heart. I am the answer to your longing for relief. And then he goes on to John 3.16. Not only is there longing on your part, there is longing on God's part. God so loved the world, and that includes you. God loved you so much that he sent his only begotten son 
But whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He doesn't want you cowering and living in fear the way servant number three does. And the inadequacy that you feel, that you know in your gut, that makes you unworthy, he's taking care of it. First Timothy 1.15, this is a true saying and worthy of all to be received. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he didn't just come with the intent to save, he came to do it. He came to be your advocate, 1 John 2, 1 through 2. To be your advocate with the Father, he who is Jesus Christ, the righteous, and to give a perfect offering for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. As we read through Matthew and come across this gentleman, it should be an invitation to reflect on the fact that the Jesus who's coming back to see what we've done with his gifts to us is not a scowling grump, but an advocate and a friend who has given us what he knows that we can handle and has been there all along. So when we look at him, we should see something different than the pointy-haired boss. And then we can't help but to look at ourselves. Can you imagine what this gentleman saw in the mirror every day? Somebody who was about to get it, who could not be knowing much joy, could not be very proud of himself. It's just not a whole lot of fun living life on the defense, looking over your shoulder all the time, living in fear. And here's where the passage hits me, because it faces me with the fears that I face when I look in, in the mirror. You may have different fears, but here's mine. My fear is just mediocrity, of my getting there and his going like, meh. I was trained as, as a New Testament scholar, but I know better scholars. I made some decisions about about the way my life was going to go that meant I didn't just go home and shut the door and do the writing that would have made me famous. And I did write a couple of things, but you know, they're not at the top of the Amazon lists. And so <laughs> it's just hard to keep writing when you, you know, you're not scholarly enough for the true scholars and it's, you're not popular enough to make a billion bucks on your, on your books. I, I love preaching, but I've sat under James Montgomery Boyce and Jim Abrahamson. I taught for years with Steve Brown, and I sat for 12 years under the preaching of Joel Hunter and Longwood. I know what good preaching is, and I can't even listen to my own. I've, I've sung and led worship since I was 18 years old. I played the guitar as well as I can play it, but I know lots better singers and lots better musicians, and sometimes I hear somebody sing and I hear somebody play, and I just want to go, I quit. 
I played college for, I played baseball in college, and I guarantee you it wasn't for a D1 school, and I, like, I never got an offer, and I just, I've tried to be the best husband and father I can, but I look in the rearview mirror, and there are so many places that I know that I've totally blown it. I've known people who are better friends, and I, I can get myself in the deepest funk imaginable. In the movie Amadeus, the envious composer Salieri threatens Mozart and says, I will ruin your incarnation. The quest to make himself look better at Mozart's expense drives Salieri mad, and he ends up in an asylum proclaiming himself patron saint of mediocrities. That's what I'm afraid of, is to look at other people who do things better than I and, and, and think about Jesus comparing me to them. And it is what happens to you if you think of God the way the third servant thought of his master as a man who reaps what he does not sow, and, as, as, and of yourself as lesser gifted than those around you. Here's where Vincent Van Gogh comes to the rescue. One of the most soul-benefiting things that I've done in a long time is to teach the little course on Vincent Van Gogh that we wrapped up just this week on Wednesday nights. It was in the last couple years of his life in the monastery at San Remy, under the care of a doctor who knew art would be therapy for him, and under the care of nuns and monks who treated him with kindness, that Van Gogh's paintings became most brilliantly Van Gogh. Van Gogh had committed himself to an asylum because he had just broken down. And part of what he was doing was processing his feelings of failure. Failure as a son. Failure as a wannabe minister of the gospel. Failure as an artist. You know, that man in his short life painted 2,000 pictures you know how many were sold in his lifetime? One. And that as a favor to his brother. Failure as a friend. Failure as a brother. And he does something extraordinary at Saint Remy. He breaks form and decides to paint directly biblical pictures. Before, for example, he wouldn't paint Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Instead, he would paint an orchard of olives to remind you of Christ's sufferings. But now he knows he needs to see Jesus. And he submits himself to the hand of artists he considers to be greater than himself. And so he takes a picture of 
He takes a picture of the Pieta, Mary holding Jesus, just brought down from the cross, by Delacroix, an, an artist that he greatly admired. And what he paints Mary holding is an emaciated Jesus with a ginger beard and Vincent's face. The painting becomes Vincent's prayer, inviting Jesus into his sufferings and giving thanks that Jesus had died for him. And he takes a painting by Rembrandt, a famous one, of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And instead of Jesus as a human figure, he paints Jesus as bright, life-giving sun. And then he paints an emaciated Lazarus coming back from the dead with Vincent's own ginger beard and Jesus and Vincent's own face. In this painting, Vincent is asking for healing and resurrection because in his epileptic attacks, he would go unconscious for those long periods of time. And the third painting he painted at this time where he copied a great master was Delacroix's Good Samaritan. Here, Vincent paints, paints a strong, virile, ginger-breaded Samaritan, a fellow deplorable, a fellow outcast. Vincent paints himself strong. He paints himself offering to help one who had been left on the side of the road another reject like himself, while the religious experts had just walked by. Here is Vincent asking Jesus, don't just be with me in my sufferings. Don't just give me life and health, but give me strength to care for the least of these, like you, the lost, the lonely, the losers, like you, like me. So, I mean, here's my commitment to you. I'll write what I can. I'll preach what I can. I'll love as best I can. If you will do what he's called and gifted you to do. And he may have given you one talent. He may have given you two talents. He may have given you five talents. All he asks is that you do the lovely prayer in, in right one says to present yourself, your soul and body as a living and holy sacrifice, knowing that you're always presenting to one who, whose very nature is always to have mercy. So today as the offering plate comes around, whether you're putting in a pledge card, whether you're putting in just a regular offering, or whether you're just putting nothing literally in there, would you put your heart in there that we may, that we may know that our master 
so wants to multiply and bless anything that we have to offer him in answer to his unspeakable offering of life to us. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen.